Hello there, and welcome to Delightful Descent. It's uh, episode 22, and today we're going to be looking at the assumption, be more empathetic, that you should be more empathetic. And this is, this is a message I've heard an awful lot, even more recently in the last year or so, when people are obviously suffering, and it's, it's repeated over and over, almost as if we can be empathetic enough, it will solve everything. And I really get the sense that if you're not displaying an appropriate amount of empathy for a situation, it's kind of it's kind of on you. It's kind of feels like a almost moral failing. Today's guest uh, is Laurie Hakter, uh, the CEO of Working Socially. Uh, welcome to the show, Laurie. Thank Hello. you for joining us. Hi. Um, and uh, if you're new to the show, Delightful Descent is kind of came out of my work with Divergent Pathfinders, with people doing things differently and very often in my own life and the people I work with have really kind of hit barriers that are in implicit beliefs and the kind of shoulds that just don't really serve you very much. And they're hidden in deep assumptions. And actually, they're really, really hard things to work with because they're so deeply embedded that we kind of have feel we have to do them. And this is a show about challenging those deep assumptions and understanding things from a slightly different perspective. It's to give you some ideas about some assumptions out there that might be holding you back, that might be causing you problems and things that you feel you should do that maybe you don't have to do or don't have to do in the same way. But perhaps more importantly, it's about normalizing doing this work. It's about normalizing going out there and saying, okay, this works in this case, but not so much for me. So hopefully it will give you the chance to pick up some tips and uh, ways, things that you can go out there and challenge yourself. And it's called delightful dissent because, yeah, it's challenging, it's dissenting, it's saying, okay, this isn't how, how I see the world, but it's about doing it in an open way and a fun way and a different way. So it's not about just proving you're right and that everyone else is wrong. It's something different. This show is genuinely live, so please do bear with us if there are any technical issues, because sometimes there are. Um, and we are talking about some big topics and potentially some personal topics. So we may come across some challenging stuff and some some potentially slightly triggering stuff. So do be aware that that, that might be coming. It's also entirely possible that we might use strong language um, because you know we're talking about some big things. So if that's the thing for you, then also please be aware. There aren't any perfect answers here. This is really about asking questions to yourself as you watch and engaging and asking us questions and engaging if you're watching live. So please do use the chat. We can see any, any messages that you share uh, and we, we'd love to uh, hear from you and share some stuff and have you join in the conversation. Uh, if you're watching the recording or listening to the podcast, please do get in touch with uh, either of us are afterwards uh, and we'll be sharing details at the end and they're in the uh, in the show notes so yeah um I, today i'm joined by laurie and we met a little while ago online and i i was really struck by her kind of practical wisdom around tricky issues and stuff that i've often kind of struggled with and and been excessively careful around and and she's very good at directly getting to the heart of things so I really really wanted to have her on the show particularly talking about this topic um so yeah could you describe a little bit about the kind of work that you do and the people that you like to work with please yeah sure so I'm uh really passionate about making very custom tailored coaching uh I'm a coach I really believe in making sure that all of my clients have very much their own bespoke uh, coaching plan uh, to really help them the most that I can. I work primarily with leaders of across the management chain. So whether you're a line manager or an SVP uh, on helping bring together teams and people for collaboration, innovation, trust, productivity, uh, primarily using compassion uh, along with practical skills like agile development and things like that. Cool. Thank you very much. So, yeah, um, before we actually get into the main bit, I always like to ask my guests to share a quote uh, that kind of supports their position a little bit or gives us a different perspective on the, on the should, on the assumption that we're challenging. So have you got something you'd like to share with us? 
Yeah, so I pulled, uh, and I think we'll get into why a little bit later. So like a little bit of a tease, I guess. Um, I pulled from the, Kamba the Kambahi River Collective, which is um, a fairly old document um, written on uh, Black female liberation. So a group of um, Black lesbians who uh, kind of decided that they needed to build um, a method of, of unoppression, of, of freeing themselves on their own terms. It's one of the bases of the concept of intersectionality. Uh, and the quote is, this focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of working from our own, working with our own oppression and working with the, the parts of ourselves that actually we're not very, often are not very comfortable with ourselves. I think this is one of the biggest challenges mm -hmm. um, is that they're the bits that that we tend to cover up, particularly you know, my own experience and um, those of a lot of people I work with is they tend to have unseen differences primarily rather than um, physically manifest differences. And so it's entirely possible to kind of mask those and, and hide. And I think what I really like about that is that it, it brings to mind unearthing those as well and not masking those from oneself aside from anything else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, thank you. How does it, what is it that really made you want to uh, to share that? So when I'm thinking about empathy and compassion, uh, I think I mentioned this to you, I'm thinking about skills and where that skill work is most poignant. Um, and the reason I pulled this quote is because something that I think is, starting to be more common in conversation. And, and it's been common in discourse. Like I said, that quote comes from, I don't honestly remember if it was the early 80s, late 70s when they wrote this. Um, but this kind of conversation of identity politics and how we identify with other people is not new. And one of the issues that we come across with empathy, especially in DEI spaces, is that we are asking people in power, we're asking leaders. Um, I'm not gonna say the unoppressed per se, because as, as you mentioned, there's a lot of um, personal oppression that can happen. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of leaders who come from oppressed groups, uh, et cetera, but, um, when you ask people of uh, a, a group more in power to become empathetic to somebody else who is in a totally different situation, it's almost not helpful because you begin to internalize a fake oppression, I think. Because empathy is about identifying with the emotions of another person. Empathy is both an, an emotion and a skill, right? It's a skill based in emotion. Feeling empathy is what the skill is. Much like feeling anger can be a skill as well. Any type of allowing yourself to feel is, is skill work very often. But empathy is a feeling in which you attempt to feel the emotions of another person. You know, I I can't watch gore. I, I really like psychological horror. I can't watch any gore because it, it physically hurts me. Um, I feel and, the same and, with cr cringe comedy. I, 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 it's, um, it's painful. Right? Like, I don't want to feel this is secondhand embarrassment and I always will with that type of comedy. Um, and like, is empathy really serving me there? I don't, I mean, like I, there's plenty of other things to watch. It's not disserving me, but um, you know, 
I can't feel the same pain. I can't empathize with what it is to come from a, a group that I'm not part of. And to that extent, I don't know that I'd want people in DEI spaces. One of the big issues is that you create empathy by asking leaders to do like learning sessions or things like that in which the people who are oppressed in their workplace are expected to reveal their pain so that leaders can feel their pain too, instead of just sympathizing and then acting and saying, you have communicated to me that you are in pain. I can do research and, and if we have the discussion, that's great if you want to have that discussion. It's kind of like how a lot of DEI stuff is sort of a voluntold situation. Um, and I can act on what you've said, but we have to be giving, we have to be prioritizing, allowing people to do the work that ends their own oppression because we ultimately are not, it's our job to support people, not necessarily to be like, oh my gosh, I feel that pain so much. And it's like, how, how could you? I don't want you to feel the pain of my fibromyalgia. And also, I don't believe you if you say you do, even though you don't have fibromyalgia, right? Like, so is, is building the empathy the important part of that discussion? And empathy can be great, right? Like being able to be like, oh yeah, this is, I've experienced pain before and I can empathize with pain because I've been in pain. Um, or the opposite. Uh, I, I know what joy is like, you know, I think we don't need to be talking about empathy just in terms of pain. Mm. I, I think that's a really great point, actually, and one that, one that doesn't get talked about enough, because one of the one of the repeating themes on, on this show is, is compassion and, and the, the working from compassion, which for me is very much about working from shared suffering. You know, it's where where do we intersect? And that actually on a positive level is where do our where does our joy intersect as well? It's not just about relieving, you know, it's not just about remediation, relief. It's about something positive as well. And I, I think that's often something that gets missed in this conversation. A really important thing that, that that's hugely overlooked in this conversation. So I, I think that's a, a really important point is not only is where is the intersection of our suffering. Where is the intersection of our joy? Yeah. Um, I Yeah, I think shared joy and shared suffering are so important um, when to, for, for us to understand, again, understanding each other, which is really sympathizing more than necessarily empathizing. Um, mm. But also, you know, we there are some like really core base emotions. I did not bring this up during the introduction, but I'm both an Agilist and um, three weeks away from getting my master's of social work finished. So close. Congratulations. Um, um, so I pull from a couple different places um, in, in tech and in social services and in clinical work um, and in DEI. Um, one of the, you know, the psych, psych stuff is that there are some core emotions. And I think we can all, because they're core emotions, you know, we can relate to fear and joy, um, right? So that's an intersection we can find. And in some ways, I think it's about then being able to stand at that intersection and look at all the different lines of it and be able to say like, this is mine and here are everybody else's. And that's not my path. Like these aren't my paths, but I can see these paths that other people are taking. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in social work, like, and, and I think this is moving into corporate, um, I think probably you've seen this as well, is really starting to emphasize strengths-based and really mm-hmm. starting to look at the strengths of something. And sometimes the best way to do that is to pivot and be like, where is our shared joy? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we allow each other to feel that joy? How do we create an environment where everybody can feel that same shared joy to a, a greater extent? Right? Mm. I, I think there's something in that for me around that it's actually active work to, to discover this, you know, uh, one of the big things in my work is that because I work in the very early stages, I work with kind of bringing ideas to life and bringing stuff to life. And if you look at an awful lot of the advice around startups and the advice around social entrepreneurship, it's like, now you've had a brilliant idea. This is how you grow it. No one talks about having a good idea in the first place. It's almost like a, it just it just magically happens. And yeah. what's interesting is this work is what generates these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I that's, yeah, no, totally agree. And that's a really interesting, like I hadn't conceived of it in that way, but totally, right? Like nobody, there's this, there's this strong perception that people are born certain ways um, and people have temperaments. There's no reason to actually believe that like people are born innovative right that's that's there's just not evidence to support that um and there are ways that innovation or that big ideas get formed and a lot of times it's about the environment you're in um and the people you surround yourself with and then yeah that very active work of like i want to do something different how Mm. do i should mute that um like get there what what is missing what where can i fill that gap um yeah and that is it's it's like work (laughs) it is and i think what's interesting is because one of the things that i've noticed is that that often this work this kind of pushing an edge particularly when it's personal is it doesn't directly create value it creates opportunity but it doesn't directly kind of, and so so it tends to get looked over in in our own lives, in our own development, and in our own kind of in our own work, and particularly in organisations. And yeah. and I think there's something really important in that. In in actually, you know, this is this is this is part of that cycle. You can't do effective work if you don't do this. And yeah. and and that that's that's a really important part of. And and this is this is actually rooted in empathy. This is kind of the value of the empathetic part of it, is when we can when we can direct that and work with that. It's that sense that directs us to to something helpful. I have said, and I I do believe this that action, that helpful action, that kind of action that will create. The environment you need is based in a combination of empathy and critical reasoning. Because just feeling somebody's emotions isn't necessarily going to help you resolve the problem. Paralyzing. Yeah, uh, especially if you don't know yourself, how you're... uh, In in therapy, we might talk about... um, transference and counter-transference, for instance. So when you're talking to somebody and you can tell that they're putting like an identity on you or what identity you're you're putting on them, um, if you don't have a very strong sense of who I am, what my ideals are, how I work as a clinician, um, or in a one-on-one, I think transference and counter-transference as a concept is really important outside of clinical settings as well but like you can very easily allow yourself to get pulled into the displacement and projection that somebody else is experiencing if you're not 
pretty confident about, you know, okay, this is how I respond to people in XYZ situations. Um, this is how I might perceive them in XYZ situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you just have to know that about yourself. So if, if you're feeling a strong sense of empathy, one, there's the question of like, are you, do you actually know what you're empathizing with? I think we see this a lot in neurodivergence, in social services. Um, you know, I'm autistic and like, luckily I didn't have, I didn't have to interact with social services, but you know, I think you see a lot of this fake empathy. I'm going to call it fake empathy because it's, it's this feeling that you are identifying with somebody, but really you've made a decision about how they feel. It's not necessarily how they feel. Um, and that's, you know, when, when you, kind of look at an autistic, uh, an autistic person who's, um, who doesn't speak, uh, and you go, oh my gosh, they must feel so terrible about that. And it's like, and, and now I feel terrible. I'm empathizing with a pain I'm assuming, not necessarily a pain that's real. And that's where critical reasoning comes in. You have to be able to ask I think we briefly before this mentioned uh, customer empathy, right? You have to be willing to really ask like, okay, not just what is the actual emotion they're feeling, but like what can be done about it critically? Like what are our options? Where do we go? And and, and for me, it's also like, do, do they even consider this a problem? Now, I think this is, and this is one of the, this is one of the huge things I've I've worked with an awful lot of organisations and seen an awful lot of startups, which are very much a solution in search of a problem. You know, very much they're like, okay, we've got this really cool thing. It does this, and te- techie people are famous for doing this. You know, it's like this is this this works really nicely. This is really exciting, but we've no idea what what to do with it. It doesn't actually help. And I think there's something very interesting in that around empathy for me. And, and as actually relates, and you know, we, we both kind of identify with neurodiversity and neurodivergence as as, as big themes and, and important stuff. And, and um, as someone uh, with an ADHD diagnosis, I, I, I similarly kind of have experienced a lot of this. And, and I think for me, there is a very downright toxic place around cures for this, which feel like these solutions from someone else, where someone else has said, oh my God, my empathy is like, I'm I'm kind of projecting this suffering onto you as someone with this condition. It's like, no, I'm suffering for completely different reasons. (laughs) This is hard for me. You think I'm suffering. Exactly, and now you're making me suffer because you think I'm suffering differently. That's, that's something um, that gets talked about a lot with with autism is part of the reason why it's, you know, disabled folks, I've built a disability ERG and big into disability activism. Um, I'm not going to say I'm a social worker on this because frankly, a lot of social workers are super ableist. It sucks. Um, but, you know, it's kind of been realized that a lot of disabled folks prefer identity first language. Person first language, so saying that you're somebody with a disability, was created by non-disabled people. Um, And I talked to a supervisor about this a lot. Like I I talked to her, she's phenomenal because we were talking about this and she immediately like went to look it up and was like, oh, you're right. Um, Because, Basically what was happening was that in social services, people were being like, well, go take care of that schizophrenic in room 302. And so they came up with this idea of person first language to identify that they are a person more than they are their, their diagnosis. The problem that's happened is that it means that people have started to dissociate individuals from their diagnoses. And with autism, it's really important to use identity first language because of the trauma of attempting to cure it. Um, There are a lot of things that I wish I could treat with like 
ADHD medication, but I'm pretty sure ADHD medication wouldn't work for me. Um, but like, really, it's about my environment and how I interact with it. Um, I don't personally consider my autism disabling, except in that I live in a world that's inaccessible. That's the social model of disability. But people have worked really, really hard to cure autism, which is eugenics. Like just straight up, it's it's eugenics. And that's because they've determined that they empathize with something that's not true. And through that, like if you cured my autism, I wouldn't be me. And it's this really, like Asperger's is a diagnosis, which is no longer a diagnosis, was made by a eugenicist very explicitly. Asperger was a eugenicist. Wow. So like, Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, it would be, I'm sure they'd be happier if they were never born. You know, that yeah. that's, that's what, that, that is the eugenics argument, isn't it? The world would, they, they, it's not, it's often made from a place of, and it's like, actually what someone is saying, one of, one of the things I've experienced is whenever anyone, is very often when anyone uses they in a sentence, what they mean is I. Mm, interesting. Whenever someone says they about about an outgroup, if you substitute I, you'll get an awful lot of truth. And and it's a really, really interesting one, you know. It's like I would be happier if they weren't here, is actually what Eudonic's argument is really yeah. saying. And that's and it's for me. I'm like I, trying to go through every time I've said they in my head right now. I know, it, it, and we all do it. It, it. It's like this is one of the huge challenges of this. And and for those of us in who have marginalised aspects of our our identity as well, it's like it's very easy to they and to to other the the typical group, the hegemonic group, and it's no more helpful for to do it than it is to other any other group so it's a it's a really really it, it it's kind of for me i i think of it you know we we do have to divide the world up and we have to simplify the world so we can work with it and that's what language does to some degree and it gives us these handles that we can work with stuff on but it's not the only way to work with stuff and it's it is always a an approximation it's always a it's an incomplete thing it's a partial truth and partial truth is dangerous yeah i'm thinking about this right now and i want to move to the hegemonic i'm not sure i fully agree with um how we other power um but i i feel like i said i was going through a whole bunch of times when i said they uh and so to to kind of give a practical example i think uh and i'm going through this, as I'm saying it, um, have not reached conclusions about what I'm about to say yet, <laughs> um, is, so I uh, recall a, a situation where I was put on a team and the team was very suddenly um, expected to work with another team. That was a much more long-lived team. It had, there were people on that team who had been there for several years and some newer people as well, but it, it was a team that had mostly been together for, like, I think the newest person had been there for six months. Um, and part of this was, you know, part of the, the reason for this reorganization was because the product was having a very difficult time. And it was one of those things where, do you ever go into a situation and you can immediately tell, like, there's something that feels weird. Yeah. Like, I can't identify exactly what it is, but there's, this doesn't feel right. I I, I have a, a I very think, high sensitivity to incongruent situations, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a lot of neurodivergent work do. Yeah. Um, and, I realized like we went to do this four hour um, workshop with both of the teams, the product managers, the managers. And I, I walked out of that meeting 
And I had been spending a lot of time trying to figure out, like now that I'm in person, because the other team was, uh, we were we were remote from each other. The other team was in headquarters and we were remote in Seattle. So we all were in the same room. And I was like, I, I need to figure out like what, what is it that's jarring to me? And at the end of that meeting, I, I talked to the engineering manager of my team and I, I told him, I was like, they don't smile. It's not that they don't smile. They never joked. They never laughed. That whole meeting, four hours, they never laughed. This is not something I've experienced at this company before. People have a lot of fun here usually, um, even in difficult situations. And I'm thinking about that they right now and, and I am wondering like what that might've looked like as a reframing of, if I said, I noticed that, you know, there wasn't as much laughter as I would expect. There is an element of like, okay, what does that say about me? Right? Like what, what doesn't say that I've noticed that and that that is something that is jarring or an important thing to have noticed to me. So that's kind of an interesting, interesting reframing. Definitely. I think one of, one of the things I've explored is, you know, we have a fairly inbuilt strong heuristic towards assigning behavioral traits to internal qualities they do this because they are whatever no, we tend to explain ourselves entirely contextually and actually yeah. the, the contextual side of things is largely really much more appropriate um i've spoken before about you know that where you have typing you know and you have personality evaluations they're, they're scientifically valid they're, they're, they are there are differences but their predictive power is actually really low and what matters far more is the context that someone's in and this is true almost always. It's like, I might know all of these things about you. I might know, you know, your, whether you're neurotypical or your specific neurodiversity. I might know your gender identity. I might know your cultural background. But out of all of those things, what's most predictive about how you're going to behave is whether or not you've had a sandwich recently, you know, whether or not you've yeah. eaten, whether or not you're hungry. And, and we, we assume all of these things, particularly when the group's different to us, you know, when, yeah. when there's some difference. And it doesn't take much as well. You know, we, we, we divide into groups really, really easily. There's this amazing, like, amazing, scary study um, called Are Minimal Groups. Are you about to do the penny study? I love the penny study. Uh, which one? I, I'll, I'll, uh, okay, the continue. Yeah, the, the, the Minimal Group <laughs> Study is the, the one where they're just assigned to a group on the coin toss. Um, oh yeah, that's like, what I. Yes, coin pass. Yeah, yeah, and 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 like, and you just tell people, right? These groups are completely random. There's nothing significant in them. Just by putting people in groups, they suddenly start to behave in the interests of that group and in the against the other group. And interestingly, for many people, they're more interested in the difference between groups than they are in the absolute as well. You know, so it's more important for them to do better than the others than it is for them to do well in absolute terms. And I think that that explains spent, an awful lot of polit politics and organizational behavior. I've spent a not insignificant amount of time coaching people on othering, um, especially being in a remote office because you get that in both, and, and people call this the distance bias or whatever, but it's more than that because it is inherently about organization. It's um, inherently about like who's getting along with who, who's in power. Um, I also say often that um, the more complicated your hierarchy is, because when you make a complex hierarchy, you get more outgroups, right? So every every additional part of that web is creating a different outgroup. And somebody in any one group, that's that's where conflicts of interest come in, right? Is that you are now part of two groups that see each other both as outgroups, right? So if you are working on it, this is something that I've seen before. You're part of a, I think a lot of people have, um, 
like specific type of team, but then you have a different manager on your day-to-day -day team. So you might be part of um, QA testing if you still have uh, a separate QA development board. And they have the QA standards and the QA manager, but they're embedded on a team and they actually roll up to that team's manager. And now you have this really complicated set of in-groups and out-groups that one person has to manage. Um, yeah. It's un unsatisfiable, isn't it? You, there's a constant tension there. And I, I've experienced this. I was in, I've always worked in, for my entire career, I've worked in like new new stuff, basically. I've always delivered new platforms, new new tools, new services, and rolled out stuff. And I ended up in an operations team. And I was still responsible for delivering new stuff in operations, which was all about keeping things the same. And that was hard because there was that constant tension. I only really figured this out afterwards. <laughs> why why was I under so much tension? Um, and, and there's something it's really-, really... To see when you're in that position, yeah. Mm. And I actually think for me, my experience is that because we have this intersectional experience in our lives, and particularly when you have an unseen difference as well, you kind of experience that on an internal, on a kind of daily basis. And there's that, there's this weird kind of, you're kind of one of us and you're kind of not one of us. And this this idea, which is, is really common to pretty much everyone I've spoken to, um, and my own experience is, is this this idea of being between worlds, of being the uh, it's it's the the idea of the eternal immigrant, you know you're you're you go somewhere else and you visit somewhere else, and you're always that that other one, and then you go back where you came from and now you're different, and so you can never go home. You you kind of you you almost lose a, a grounded place and then you have to create another place of your own and i think yes. this work is actually core to you know th this self-advocacy work and the group advocacy work is when we find ourselves between these places that, that feels like a lot of the work that's something that super speaks to me um and this might get a little bit more vulnerable on my part um because i'm mixed race um my father is Pakistani. Um, my mother is very white. And, um, you know, I live in Seattle these days, so my I've lost a significant amount of melanin. <laughs> um, I used to be uh, quite a bit darker than I am now, um, certainly when I was living in Georgia. Right. Um, the light doesn't help. But, um, you know, I primarily grew up with my mother's family. Well, with my step family. Um, uh, and some with my mother's family, all of whom were were white. Um, though my, my mother's family is Mormon. My step family was Jewish. Obviously, my father's family, uh, well, not obviously, but my father's family was Muslim. Um, and it was, and it still is, um, kind of this bizarre, complicated experience because in some ways I was essentially raised white, but I wasn't, and I was quite clearly not white. Um, I remember, for instance, my stepfather would uh, joke about, um, well, you don't need to be out in the sun, you're dark enough already. Uh, one of those things that I did not realize how fucked up it was and how racist it was until I was much older. Um, and now, even though he's dead, I choose to spite him by saying, like I, I always have for many years, since I was like 18, um, uh, just stay out in the sun like 20 minutes longer <laughs> than I really needed to be. Um, I never told him that that's what I was doing, but I definitely did it. Um, but yeah, being kind of mixed race and also having this complicated family dynamic. Um, my father has or, uh, 12 siblings, I believe, living across the world. Um, so, you know, the very few times I would see my father's family, it was very different. And then when I saw my father when I was young, he actually was um, dating an Indian woman. 
And so I grew up identifying a lot more with Indian culture in some ways um, than Pakistani culture. And it is a very, it's a very specific type of experience that doesn't get talked about a lot. But when I've talked to other mixed race folk who are also displaced from their families in some ways, um, I would say I'm very displaced from a lot of my family. Um, it's a similar type of feeling of the feeling of, um, yeah, not belonging anywhere. Um, and I, I don't want people to empathize with that, right? Like I want people to believe that they have a home. I really want, I'm someone who always throughout my life and even now, I want to help people not experience the pain that I've been through or to heal from trauma and things like that. I don't, I don't wanna convince leaders to feel my pain. It almost feels like self-exploitation at that point. What I want is for that pain to be recognized and the world to be a little bit easier to move through. And, um, you know, I think, I think you mentioned earlier, like what is predictive of behavior in some ways you're right in that, you know, there's not an inherent, there's not an inherent, uh, way that autistic people act. There's not an inherent way that neurotypical people act. There's not an inherent way that, um, black folks or uh, Mexicans or like, there is however an environment created and that environment is going to affect large portions of, of groups, mm -hmm. right? It, it is very much an experience that many black folks have of not wanting to interact with police, how do I drive safely, right? And and that's, you know, I don't usually get into a car with my spouse who is very white um, and worry about like getting pulled over. And that shared experience is going to make a lot of folks act in a certain way about driving and about how they raise their children for being safer, um, for not interacting with cops, for things like that. So there's, there's not a prediction of specific behavior, but there is a contextualization. And again, we bring in our critical reasoning skills here, right? The sympathy, if you just feel the pain of like, what it would be like to be that afraid of driving. Um, and I should be using an example for myself right now, honestly. Uh, this is a poor life choice. I'm going to call that out right now uh, on my part to be talking about uh, a group that I'm not representative of. So apologies. Um, it's just kind of topical, I guess. Um, but if I'm experiencing that pain, but I'm not capable of saying like, this is where my part of helping this is. And that's another part, right? If I identify with that pain and I go, oh, it must be my job to stop this oppression. Again, we're here to liberate people by using their own power and their own words. And if you, don't have, if you haven't practiced the muscles, I think we also talk about compassion, which is that being joining together with somebody, right? Um, and the thinking skills of like, where is my part? How do I educate myself to find out my part? And then how do I do my part? Um, 
how do I join? You know, one of the things that a lot of folks talk about, um, it comes originally from um, an indigenous activist. I think it might have been Indigenous Rising. Gosh, don't exactly remember, but is the um, accomplice versus ally, right? You're joining in with the needs of other people and being an accomplice with them um, to, to change that system and to break it down. Mm. You're not there to just feel pain. Mm. I think that because one one of the big challenges with this is, is the, the the complicity that we share in in the the way that the system is recreated. Because we 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 could all collectively choose to do things completely differently tomorrow morning, and it would be completely different. But that isn't how these kind of complex systems work, and there's so many dependencies and related dependencies. So we all we do have this complicity in in the suffering of others and other people's and our own suffering as well. It's one of the huge challenges of doing this work. And whilst I say about doing this work, if, if you're watching live um, and you've got any questions or anything, please do share them in the chat. Um, I'd like to take this last quarter hour to start to focus on some slightly more practical ways to start going about this, because you know, it's all very well talking about these things and they can feel quite, however much they resonate, Again, we don't want to be doing doing the empathy piece without without some practical stuff. So um, I think that there's a, there's something really important for me in, in applying it about really kind of an unpicking, a teasing apart and sitting with it, giving ourselves the space to do that and to, to be with other people and to be with people who are like us in our difference and who are different in different ways and, and to actually allow ourselves that and allow ourselves actually our responses. I think one of the really important things you mentioned earlier was 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 skillful, skill with empathy. And I think for me, almost all emotions, almost all feeling, it's a, it's a we want to be able to express them but we want to be able to express them skillfully. And for many people who are used to having unseen difference, we learn to suppress them instead. We learn to completely hide them and we learn to mask. And that has long-term consequences and reduces our ability to, to really be ourselves and be our most joyful and effective selves in the world. I would say that that's also true for people with seen differences, like code mm. switching, right? That's an interesting one. I mean, it's, it's just not... For me personally, it's not an area I have. It's an, it's an area I have almost no experience with, as a white, born as a man, you know, kind of uh, middle class, which is more relevant in this country than it is in the US, maybe. Um, and and so I think there's, there's more middle class in the UK than there is what, in the US. There's a really interesting difference, in, and I think it's one of the fundamental differences between the way we arrange our society and how we implicitly read others, um, is that the way I, the best way I heard it described, which which completely made me re-understand everything about how about American politics, the US politics, was that class is to the UK what race is to the US. I think I don't know enough about. UK culture to fully. Um... If, if you see, use that as a lens next time you encounter anything British, like any British that. cultural stuff, and and I'd yeah, be yeah. interested to see how you get on with that. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit beyond this conversation. But I need to marinate on that. I need to, to think about mm. that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I see empathy. I see all emotions. Emotions are not inherently positive or negative. I think we've talked about some of the negative effects of empathy, for instance, and you can get a lot more into that with things like vicarious trauma, uh, which again, clinical term that happens all the time in our lives is when you hear about trauma and you over empathize with it and you feel as though like you start to gain similar trauma. Um, you see it more in clinical settings, right? When somebody is when you're working with somebody who has experienced incredibly traumatic lives or has inflicted trauma on other people, usually both, usually uh, there's a lot of relation between the two. Um, 
not necessarily that traumatized people inflict trauma, but those who inflict trauma are often traumatized through various means. Um, uh, so obviously in that situation, it's, it's even more difficult, but we get this all the time. We, we experience um, vicarious trauma or seeing people's trauma constantly. Burnout is a type of trauma or when people, you know, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of conversations about vulnerability end up being about being vulnerable with what is essentially your trauma. Um, I also believe that there's a lot of vulnerability in that strengths-based, like, I think that thanking people can be very vulnerable, that giving true appreciation can be very vulnerable. One of my favorite things is when I go into a new place, a new community, I always tell people I appreciate you. Um, not just I love you. I, I love telling coworkers that I love them when it won't feel weird to them, but I appreciate you. You know, there's a lot to appreciation. And one of the things I love is that eventually that spreads. I've, I've seen it so many times where eventually I start seeing lots of people say I appreciate you to each other because that's a vulnerability as well. Um, and we can be vulnerable in those ways. So if, I, if I'm talking about skills and emotions, I'm thinking about every emotion is asking something of us. So how do we interrogate that emotion to figure out what it needs? And then how do we provide it what it needs in a pro-social and you know, personally healthy way? Um, and I think that also analyzing how other people might be doing that is, is helpful. One of the skills that I've been thinking about just as we've had this conversation that I love doing with people, this is one of my favorite workshops, is this strengths-based analysis. Because I, I think especially in Agile, did you and I meet originally at an Agile conference? No, it was Future of Work, I think. It was Future of Work, yeah. Future of Work, yeah. Um, which is just also a lot of agilists. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I love, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll look at teams because in a lot of these spaces, people talk about being strengths-based, but that's also a skill that's like difficult to learn. And I will say like, think about your most difficult team. Like think about the team that makes you sick to your stomach thinking about that team or the relationship or whatever. Give me the words that you think of to describe it. And now, and then I make them ask, what were the best parts of that team? What were the best things you experienced and how could we have leveraged those best things to improve the situation rather than being like they're lazy and difficult and don't communicate and like really passive aggressive. So like, how do we fix the passive aggression? Well, maybe it's not about fixing that. Maybe it's about creating the environment that helps them explore these strengths a lot mm. better. Um, I think that systemic focus, that, that holding, you know, thinking, not thinking about like, that there's something in me that needs fixing, or there's something in you that needs fixing, but actually there's there, there's there's something about all the stuff around us that's causing this to emerge, and if we don't like what's emerging, then we look at all of the stuff. We don't need yeah. to look at we don't need to you know, and I, I think that relates to letting go of blame. And I think perhaps one one of the things I like to do in this show is find things that people don't have to do anymore because we have so many more, there are so many people talking about kind of, you know, so much stuff in the kind of self-development space and the, you know, all of this, it's like, do more, do this as well. More, I've more, got, more, more. We've, we, I, I know no one who who has like, who's, who's sitting there going, oh yeah, I, I, I've got plenty of space and time to do another thing. So in terms of the should, I think that idea of blaming yourself or blaming other people, but particularly, I think self-blame is the one that comes out for these things, for the marginalized parts of yourself, and actually for the marginalization that you've you've perpetrated in others. The blame isn't helpful. You might want to change it, and you might really want to change it, 
But the blame, the like trying to fix the stuff that happened in the past, it just tells us what we can do about the future. In dialectical behavioral therapy, there's kind of this difference between justified and unjustified guilt. Um, and both of them require letting go of some amount of blame for yourself because the self-hatred stops people. And I, I've seen that. It stops people in their tracks from being able to do things because it's so... There are a handful of things in my life that I truly deeply regret. The, the, again, the types of things that you look back on and you go like, that was really terrible of me. And most of them I was a teenager for, and I can give myself a lot of forgiveness for that. Um, a couple of them early 20s. But if I had just spent a lot of time being like, I'm terrible, you know, I think after those, each of those things, I'd go back to my therapist and be like, so let's figure out why I did that and never let it happen again. And that requires a lot of work. It also requires a lot of rest. It requires coming back from that more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Right. Uh, because we're not, I don't read nonfiction books. I don't do it everywhere in the world. People are like, well, you really need to read this specific book because it's incredible. And you will learn so much about yourself and your life. And I'm like, I read to get the fuck out of myself in my life. Don't do this to me. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I think that, like, the things you allowing yourself to do, the things you enjoy, that are good for you too, and not to do the things you don't enjoy that are good for you. Because there's plenty of stuff out there that that is both enjoyable and good. You know, and I think the challenge is often finding them. And this is true of workplaces and this is true of personal stuff. If then, if you're not like some people, probably people in the middle of the bell curve in almost all ways, kind of have this stuff handed to them. And that's fine. That's how, that's how it is. That's, that's, that's just for those of us who are away from the, the middle of the bell curve in some significant way, we have to figure it out and we have to try it out. And that's actually true of organizations and individuals and everything. And I think for me, it actually relates to Agile. It's about creating experiments that are safe to fail. Everything about, relates to Agile if you're in my brain. <laughs> yeah, I, it does all loop back. It's really interesting. But but but, but that, that like, you know, I, I want to express, I have this feeling and I want to express it. So I'm going to do it a small bit. I'm just going to try a little bit. I'm not going to go all the way there. I'm not going to... You know, I want to I want to learn to speak in public better. So I'm not going to suddenly have a live an hour long live stream where I talk to someone else and do that. I'm going to do a small bit first. I'm going to try a little bit first. You know, I talk to a load of people and I do do work around content quite a lot. And it's like loads of people want to learn to public speak. And it's like, don't stand up in front of an audience of a thousand people when you first do it. Do not. It will be crippling and it will go likely go really badly wrong. Right. Do it in the mirror first, <laughs> and then do it to one person that you trust really well. Yeah. Gentle call in. Um, yeah. It's really hard to call out things that people don't know are slurs without citing the slur. Um, but the, the I'll just do it. Um, cripple is considered a slur. Uh, and, you know, that's that's something that disabled folks who experience that are reclaiming, but language adjustment, Colin. Mm, thank you, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I, wanna, I wanna get into that in really I interesting. Said, uh, a lot of people just change it to debilitating. Yeah. It's debilitating, um, which is yeah. a little bit more accurate too. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, have... I think I, oh, I have feel we have a, a, another hour on, on language and discourse and power, actually. But um, I don't want to do that right now. And I do want to wrap this one up. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, maybe we yeah, could so do I, that on your on your show, <laughs> if you like. Sure. I think to summarize um, some of the like action skills, things you can do um, around both beyond building beyond empathy, right? Like beyond empathy, what can we do? Uh, what are our actions? I think that definitely doing a lot of strengths-based analysis of yourself and your teams is super powerful. 
and learning how to leverage those strengths um, in kind of a factual way can really, really help, uh, especially when you do it with people. Don't do it on your own. Don't solve other people's problems for them. Ask them how to solve their problems. So much of my coaching comes down to like, have you asked them? Did you talk to them? Did you make a decision without talking to them? Because if you did, probably your problem. It's your problem, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Strengths-based analysis. I also think, like, I do personally, um, and this is, I think, something a lot of people can do, like, learn themselves, um, like, a self-care workshop that looks at self-care as community care. Um, and, you know, you and I talked about Foucault a little bit, uh, a, a lot. We both really like Foucault. Um, but being able to sit down and, as you were mentioning, those iterative goals and looking at your self-care goals and as part of that, your community goals and what are the goals of your community and what are your goals for interacting with it. It's a very powerful thing that can really help us both empathize with ourselves, do self-work, and then integrate that within our larger communities. Um, so some of the radical also comes from Black liberation. Um, Self-care stuff can be really incredible. Uh, also take a nap. I mean, I hate naps. They don't work for me, but I think everybody could do, it's really, really difficult to do the work of liberation um, and also the work of dismantling power structures, which is a lot about corporate and a lot about teams. I'm sorry, I know it, it's controversial and people hate those words in corporate, but like, that's what it is. When we talk about empowering teams, we're talking about changing a system dramatically and power systems. Um, it's really hard to do that if you're burned out. It's really hard to do that if you're blaming yourself for things. It's, it's really hard to do that if you and your body and your habits don't give you the space to do it. Mm. So rest. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's amazing advice. And I'd, I'd, I'd like, like to kind of use that as the point to wrap up with and actually share my own experience around rest and that for a long time, it's actually, it might sound strange and uh, I'd be interested to know I, this is this is certainly something I've spoken to other people with ADHD about and that actually rest is the hard thing rest is often the hardest thing and learning to do it in a way that works for you and creating a context where you can is deeply non-trivial but it's really really important work and from there flows all of the the stuff so I, I completely agree and I think it's completely okay if that's not easy if that's not obvious. If it is easy and obvious, like, please tell us your secrets. There are so many healing professionals. I think about the NAP ministry. Go look at the NAP ministry. I learned so much from the NAP ministry. Um, and and it's hard for them, right? It's, this. that's all they do is rest work. Um, and rest work for others. And it's especially in a society so focused on productivity, mm. um, especially where our livelihoods are so connected and in the US even more with our the, the corporatization of our bodies and our minds. Mm. Um, and it's so hard to make the decision to rest and to have that boundary, boundary work. Also, building your boundaries. I've done this so many times with people. Nobody knows how to build boundaries properly. Very difficult, practicable skill, but not. I've found very few people who really know how to like define a boundary. Mm -hmm. um, and it it is it that rest is hard work. Finding rest, building rest into our habits, building mm -hmm. space. Um, it's not and I'd, I'd like to add um, a quick kind of plug. Normally, I ask my guests for some for an offer around this, but um, we spoke about this before the show, and, and uh, Laurie has been helping me um, around and really kind of a, 
co-founder, co co-contributor to, to the uh, Divergent Pathfinders community that I've been exploring and putting together for myself, which is a space to to explore exactly this stuff and to explore the the stuff for each of us individually because it's different. That's one of the key things is we 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 have the kind of commonality and we have the difference as well. And it's it's a place to explore that in a different way and reclaim that and work from that. So if you're interested in joining us or finding out a little bit more, it's very early days yet. So it's very much kind of, you know, think of it as a beta test. Um, that uh, but but come and have a look at, at divergentpathfinders.com and join us in the chat and join us for some events we're going to be having coming up soon um we'd love to have you there is there um is there anything else you'd like to to offer or, or share before we before we get to close this off yeah so obviously you know i have my services i do like to tell people that if you want to talk to me i'm, I'm not going to charge you for just being like for, for consultations or for like being like, you said this really interesting thing. I'd like to talk about it more. Like, that's fun. I love doing that. Um, I, I have my own video series as well. Very new called Thought Bubble. I think the first episode called Power. The topic is power uh, is probably very related to this. It is 16 minutes. So you have very little to lose if you are interested in hearing me ramble about power and Michelle Foucault for a little while. Um, yeah. Cool. Connect we have a link. LinkedIn. Yeah. Cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. Connect on LinkedIn. Yes. And the, sh the link to LinkedIn and to the show are in the show notes as well for this. So, uh, so you can follow the link straight there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, really enjoyed having you as a guest. Uh, so. We do. And I, I really appreciate you. And I want to say it like on the recording. I have a lot of love for you. You've been fantastic, even though we like barely knew each other. So very grateful to you and, and the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. You too. And I think all of us, it, it's it's really, it can feel quite lonely doing this work and, and knowing other people are doing something similar is for me, I, I guess is actually part of the reason I like doing this show because I get to talk to people like you doing that and it's great. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you very much. So the next episode of the show is next week, and I'm going to be talking to Sophie Turton from The Joyful um, about the idea, it's all on me. Uh, and this is a rearranged episode. We were going to talk a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's a really, really interesting one. And, and actually, I love the way that these link up in unexpected ways. And that, that feeling of the weight of responsibility, particularly around the weight of responsibility to change things, is a huge thing. And also that plays into the difficulty of getting help when you are different, you know, when you experience yourself as different. Often help can be a very, very difficult thing to find and a hard, like another thing that you have to learn is to learn to get help. And I think it's really interesting. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that. Um, and that will be at 5 p.m. UK time on Wednesday the 28th. So um, it's just under a week away. Um, thank you all very much for watching. Um, do get in touch with me or get in touch with Laurie um, and continue the conversation if this has sparked anything for you and share it with anyone else as well. Um, but otherwise, um, thank you and go out there and make some delightful descent of your own. Thanks very much for watching and goodbye.